you'll open uh, your Bibles with me to Micah, Micah chapter 5. This is a quick test to see if you can find Micah. If not, we'll have it on the screen. Please stand with me as we read Micah 5 in the first five verses here. The prophet says this, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, although you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time comes when she who was in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. May God bless this reading of his word today. You may have a seat. I think we've all read plenty of storybooks that begin with some sort of false evil king taking the throne, a usurper, a Hamlet, stuff like that. But this actually happens at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. We read about this king named Herod. I remember when I was a kid and I used to, we had these Christian comic books of the Bible. And all I remember is this one panel is talking about how bad Herod was, and it said, and Herod died and no one cried. And that's always stuck in my head, how disliked this man was. But it kind of created this curiosity in me. Why was Herod disliked? And I've studied his life uh, growing up, going through seminary. Herod was, he was an opportunist who saw the opportunity of century come along when the Romans came and they conquered Israel. And he went, oh, Usually what happens is that the Romans will install a governor over a particular province to you know, oversee the people, get the taxes and whatnot. But he thought, I have a better idea. So he went to Rome. He petitioned Rome. He said, let me be the king. The king. We have to use air quotes here. Let me be the king over Israel. I'll take care of these people. I know them. I'll make sure that they don't rebel against you. I'll get you your tax money. Rome said, sure. Why not give this guy a shot? So Herod ruled as a vassal king over Israel for the 30 years leading up to the birth of Jesus. And during that time, he sat really uneasy on his throne. He saw threats everywhere, and they weren't just imagined. People hated Herod, deeply hated. The Jews hated him because here's a guy who's ruling over them that sided with the Romans. And they also hated him because here was a guy who called himself the king who did not come from the line of David. Only people from the family line of David were allowed to sit on the throne of Israel. It had been decreed that way. But here Herod is. He's got his butt in that chair. He's ruling. And Herod grew very paranoid against any threat against him. Perceived, real or not, whatever. He, He established a secret police force. The secret police weren't just a Gestapo. They've been in a lot of dictatorships over the centuries. He had a secret police. They would root out 
any sort of opposition. He had no compunctions against jailing and killing members of his own family, against using crucifixion as public reminders that this is what happens if you stand up against Herod. He was, he was a very cold-blooded man. He was not a guy you wanted to get on the wrong side of. So we can kind of understand when we read Matthew, and Matthew says that all of Jerusalem trembled when the wise men came from the east, they walked right into the throne room, and they said, where's the new king? Where's the new king that was just born that is from the line of David? Where's this new king? All of Jerusalem trembled. They waited with their breath held to see what, this, what Herod would do. We know the story. We know that Herod was crafty. He told the wise men, who didn't even know how insane this guy was, he said, well, go find this king. Let me know about him so I can worship him too. As he's polishing his knife there. And the, the wise men go off. The angels warn the wise men. The angels warn Joseph, flee, get out of there. Run away. Herod's coming. And Herod came into Jerusalem or into Bethlehem by all accounts, murdered 25 to 30 toddlers. We know that part of the Christmas story. But what we tend to, to gloss over when we read that account in Matthew is the actual proclamation that the wise men share with Herod that comes from the book of Micah. And that's what I want to look at today because these five verses in Micah are among the most important messianic prophecies of the entire Old Testament. They tell us so much about this king to come, who he was, and what he would mean for us. So let's look at that today. I want to really study this. And in order to study it, we have to rewind the clock. We have to go back 700 years before the wise men, before Herod, before a baby in a manger. So we're, we're really going back in time here. 700 years to an Israel that's almost completely different. 700 years before that, Israel was on the verge of a complete breakdown. It had fallen away from God completely. There was sexual immorality. There was gross uh, oppression of the poor. There were people seizing lands that were meant for the common good, and they were seizing it for themselves. And so God had come to the end of his patience, and he sent Micah and Isaiah at the same time. And he said, you guys are my covenant enforcers. I want you to go around to the country and tell them, my patience is done. I am bringing judgment to you. You have failed in your agreement with me, and the hour is due. And this harsh judgment was going to be very hard on them. And we actually see that in the first verse here of Micah 5, this imagery of a siege coming. What he's talking about here is God using the Assyrians one of, the, one of those countries that existed way back when in the Iraq-Iran region. And the Assyrians swept in, and they actually conquered all the way through the northern kingdom of Israel. Scattered the people. So the Jews were no longer in there. And they actually continued to march on the southern kingdom of Judah. They got all the way to the front doorsteps of Jerusalem, and that's where they stopped. But in this first verse of Micah 5, it says that the current ruler of the country would be struck across the cheek. Imagine a powerful backhand blow that knocks him completely off the throne. God is saying here, that king is about to fall. And it gets 
worse. Verse 3, God says, that king, once he falls off the throne, you will not have a Davidic king on that throne for a long time to come. You're going to have to wait. And that was devastating for the people of Judah to hear. Yet, there's hope. Isn't that how it always is with God? Even in the darkest hour, there's hope. Even when we think all is lost, there's redemption. And here, in Micah 5, it's that he's talking about impending judgment. This should be the darkest hour ever. And in the middle of it, he inserts these five verses that are the brightest verses that the Old Testament has to offer. He, he focuses people beyond the judgment to a time of restoration and reconciliation. He says, a king is coming. Yeah, your king just got knocked off the throne. But a king is coming who will bring salvation and restore the nation. If you've ever remember when you're back when you were disciplined as a child, and your parents would say, I'm doing this for your own good, and you're like, then just don't do it. You know, it's like, I don't want to be spanked. I don't want to be grounded. Just don't do it. And they're like, I'm doing this for you. It hurts me more than it hurts you. Which is kind of true, but kids don't really understand it. Kids don't understand that a good parent, when they discipline their child, it's not to bring pain and suffering. It's to bring correction. It's to bring discipline so that the kid will get off the path leading to sin, get off the path of destruction, and get onto the path that leads to somewhere much better. And so when God disciplines the nation of Israel, He says, I'm doing this. I love you. I know this hurts now. But... It is for your own good. It is for a better future. There is hope here. And so that's why the people of God held on to these verses so tightly for the next 700 years. And we know that they did. Because in the Gospel of John, when people are trying to figure out who Jesus is, they say, you know what? We've been looking for a guy coming out of Bethlehem. We've been looking for a king who is coming. Maybe, maybe this is it. They're quoting Micah. I mean, so they've been quoting him for 700 years. They've held on to this through the punishment, looking forward to the restoration. Dearly beloved, sometimes we are disciplined from God. God tells us this in the epistles. I will discipline. Those I love, I discipline. Those I love, I punish. And I don't do it to hurt you. I don't do it to bring grief to your life. I do it because you are sinning, and if I don't intervene, you'll just keep on sinning. I'm trying to bring you to a better place. So when we are disciplined from God, don't grow resentful toward God. Don't draw inward on your own misery, but instead, and I know this sounds weird, rejoice. Rejoice that you have a God that loves you so much that he is willing to intervene in your life to get you off a wrong path and bring you to a place where there can be ultimately healing and restoration. Where you'll look back one day and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you did. Even though I hated it at the time, thank you. How many of us had to postpone vacations this year? Because of COVID. When you get off your, your vacation, when the vaccine comes around, when life goes back to normal, whenever that is, I, I fully expect that there will be a Sunday here at Knox Church where about three people will show up because everybody else will be on that long-lost vacation that they got, they got robbed of back in 2020. And when that happens, 
promise me this. If you're on a road trip and you happen to be going through Iowa, consider adding this, the town of Riverside to your itinerary. And this is why. If you go to Riverside, Iowa, it's a very small town. has a park in the middle of the town. And at that park, there was a bench. Across the bench, there was a stone tablet. And that stone tablet lets you know one very important fact, that 200 years from now, Riverside, Iowa, will be the birthplace of Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> they know this because from the TV shows and the movies, Captain Kirk has mentioned being born in this little know-nothing town of Riverside, Iowa. And that today, the tourism board heard about that and they went, ah, we have a, we have a great opportunity here. You know, we're going to put up a plaque saying Kirk is going to be born in our town. And who's going, who's going to dis, you know, dispute that? Everybody's going to be dead in 200 years. We can make that claim now and cash in on those tourism dollars. So that's what you can look at. And <laughs> look at that little stone tablet. But while Riverside's proclamation is just kind of a fun bit of self-promotion, Micah, uncannily, doesn't say 200 years from now. It says 700 years from now, I can tell you exactly where the king is going to be born. I can tell you about his origin. You want me to tell you about his origin? I can tell you two very important facts about the origin of the king to come. It's very tantalizing. The first is in verse 2. We are told exactly where this king will be born. O little town of Bethlehem. While we know Bethlehem very well, at December comes around, we sing about this town. Back in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, Bethlehem was a one-stoplight town. It was a know-nothing little tiny village five miles away from Jerusalem that the biggest claim to fame it ever had was it was the birthplace of King David. But David didn't end up staying there, so it was, you know, they're, they're selling the postcards, they're selling the, I, I went to David's birthplace kind of thing. But that was it for Bethlehem. It really wasn't that great of a place to be. So to predict that a king would be born in an obscure town is to point to a king that would be born in obscurity. He wouldn't be born in fame. He wouldn't be born in the biggest cities of the the region. It also told them that 700 years from now, Bethlehem was still going to be around, so that's something. But I think that this is an incomplete nature of how God operates. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says that God always chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses a small town to shame Jerusalem. He chooses the, the David, who is the youngest of his family, to shame the rest of it. He always goes with the people, the situations we don't quite expect. That's my God. My God says, you know, you guys, with all your wisdom, think I'm going to work in this way. I'm going to be over here in a small little town, in a tiny little manger, a tiny little baby's going to be born, and that baby's going to save everything. It's going to save the world. That's what God does. But here's the weird thing. Even in the same breath that Micah is saying, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, the same exact breath he says that this king will be from old, from ancient days. I don't know how many babies you've met in your life. I can't describe many babies that I've met as being from old, from ancient days. I've met some babies that look old. They, they're born looking like old men. I don't know. They get cute about a week into it, but you have to really lie to 
parents of brand newborns. I'm sorry, I saw Joel when he was having a day old. You know. he's, like, he's like the Quaker Oats, you know, a little old man, right? But they're not really from old. They've got that new baby smell. They're awesome. You know, you're just you know, sniffing them forever, and the baby's looking up at you like, what? what? Huh? what? Stop smelling me. That's so weird. But babies aren't from old. They're not, that's another way of saying they're from eternity. So here we have a conundrum, a mystery, that we have a future king to be born, and we know he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but that future king to be born is from eternity, is from old, is from ancient days. It's from beyond the beginning of the universe. And people, Old Testament believers, said, I don't even know where to start with this. How, how could those two things go together? And only when the eternal son came down to be incarnated as a human child did these two prophecies click into place. And suddenly, it made sense. Isaiah 53 wrote of Jesus when he said of this future king that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't just born in obscurity. He grew up in obscurity. You couldn't pick him out of a lineup. He was just a kid. He looked like every other kid. But that king that was born in obscurity, that was raised in obscurity, he grew up underneath it all with the power and majesty and glory of God. God chooses the weak to shame the strong. That's a marvel for us. Every Christmas time when it comes around and we consider this babe born in a manger, we consider how God uses the weak to shame the strong. We should be in awe of how God moves in the world, how he does move in surprising and mysterious ways. And for those of you who think, well, God wouldn't use me. I'm pretty weak. I'm pretty old. I'm pretty frail. I'm not that smart. I've heard all these things. Watch out, because I've got news for you. That's exactly what God does. Now, Micah's proclamation of, of the king didn't just stop with his origin. He also went on to his mission. Now, to explain this, I want to go back and I want to propose a homework assignment if you're really bored this week. And that is, go through all of First and Second Kings, all First and Second Chronicles, and make a list of every ruler, every rightful ruler of Israel and Judah, both countries together, all of the kings that the Jews ever had, starting with Saul, going all the way, you can be all the way up through Herod if you want to. Divide them into two categories. Category A will be all of the kings that are described in the Bible as being kings after God's own heart. Kings that follow God, kings that worship God, kings that were for God. Then in the second column are all the evil kings. Kings that said, I don't want anything to do with God. I want to live according to my own rules. I want to do whatever. I want to be wicked, whatever. What you're going to find, if you ever do that experiment, is that in column B is pretty much every single king of the Old Testament. And in column A are about six guys. Six. A half dozen of all of Israel's kings could even lightly be described as following God. And those are your David, your Hezekiah, your Josiah. But even of those six, none of them perfectly followed God. None of them could be said that God could look at them and say, that person carried out perfectly the role that I established for them. 
They did not perfectly rule the people. They did not carry out my divine will to a T. Absolutely none of them. So that's why in Micah 3, there's a very specific phrase I want to focus on here. We read it. It went right by us. We're going to stop the record. We're going to back up. We're going to look at it because this is so important. Micah 5.3 says this. God says, Out of Bethlehem will come for me one who will be ruler. God doesn't just say, Bethlehem is going to have a ruler who's going to be born. He says that ruler will come for me. For God. God has never once said that about a king of Israel to date. But now he says, a king is coming for me. That means that king will fulfill my plan. He will completely conform to me. He will completely obey me. He will completely do everything a king should. He will live up to every expectation and beyond those of humans and be to my expectations. He will come for me. That is amazing. But how could such a king have that ability? Well, Micah answers that too. Look at this. We're getting answers all over the place. Verse 4, Micah tells us he will do this in the strength of the Lord. If you've got a task that's so big that God sets expectations for, you're going to need God's strength to be able to fulfill that task. But Jesus had that, right? That king had that. I think sometimes we have a difficult time allowing Jesus to be king over our lives because every other king we've ever known, every other president, ruler, leader, ourselves has failed in some way. We can always point to somebody's failings. That's a great thing about politics, isn't it? You can always point to anybody across on the other side of the aisle and say, look at them. Look, they made a mistake. Whereas everybody on the other side of the aisle says, look at your guys. They made mistakes. Well, yes, they're sinful humans. That's what sinful humans do. They're frail. They're faulty. They fail you. And if you put all your hope and trust in one, sooner or later, they will let you down. So we look at Jesus and we say, I have such a hard time putting you as king when everybody else has failed me. But here's the difference. This king is for God. And when he is for God and comes in the strength of God, there is no way he can fail you. No way he can drop the ball, forget about you, make a mistake that will suddenly ruin your life ever after. He will be perfect in every way to be your king. He's the only one that deserves to be followed. Jesus broke a broken model when he came along to be the final greatest king that Israel ever had, beyond Israel to the world. We can place our faith in him because of that. This year, we're probably not going to have a Christmas pageant unless Steve puts on a one-man show, and I think he would be willing to do that. But usually when we have the Christmas pageant, one of the parts of the Christmas pageant we love to draw out because it's really cute, the whole procession of the shepherds and the sheep and the angels. And we, oh man, we get a lot of mileage in churches about that. It's just absolutely adorable. And we think about this time a lot. We talk about this a lot. But how odd it was to have the angels come down and sing to shepherds in the fields nearby. When you think about it, God was not being efficient that night. He wasn't. 
If he wanted to reach the maximum number of people possible, what would God have, should have done? He should have waited until there like, was a big festival in town in the middle of the day and brought down the angels then. That would have reached a whole lot of people. Instead, he uses the weak again. He jukes when we think he's going over here. And he goes to the middle of the night into the countryside to send his entire legion of angels to go talk to, you know, like five guys sitting around with their sheep. But it's always made sense to me that the news of the great shepherd to come would first be announced to those who would understand it the best. It's, I've never been puzzled about that. And when you think about it, wasn't that a great thing that Micah describes this coming king as being a shepherd? There could have been so many worse things that Micah could have said. Your coming king will be a conqueror. Your coming king will be a tyrant. Your coming king will be a deviant. Or maybe your coming king will be a violently insecure usurper who will have absolutely no problem murdering children. But instead, Micah says, your king. He says this. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to put words in his mouth. He says this in verse 4. He says the coming king will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. There is such deep comfort in considering that an all-powerful king who comes of, of old from ancient days, who comes with the power and strength of everything that God has, he comes to use his considerable might to shepherd his people, to protect them, to care for them, to guide them. Consider this. When we look at sin, not a popular topic, but when we look at our sin, we consider not only how much it offends God, not only how much it hurts our relationships with other people, but consider how much sin has wrecked you on the inside. If you could lay out your life, unfold your life like a book, you would see on every page stain sinning every day of your life, hurting you, wounding you, wounding your conceptions of the world, your relationships with other people, creating all these guilt and doubt inside of you, pulling you away from God. All of these wounds you've carried around your entire life. And then, when we are brought into the flock of the shepherd, the great shepherd says this, come to me, let me heal you. Let me bring you peace. Let me bring you beside quiet waters and restore your soul. We need healing. We need healing and we're still hurting. Even saved Christians, we still have those wounds inside of us. Some of those wounds go deep. Some of us have sins that we dare not mention to anybody else because they are that bad. But Jesus is a greater God than any of our sins, and he can heal you. He can take you in and be your shepherd. With such an astounding proclamation here in Micah, it's no wonder that the Jews held on to the hope and promise of these five meager little verses for 700 years, why they were still talking about it in Jesus' day. Because no matter how bad things got for them, no matter how much they failed God, they said, but God promised us that He will send us a king. 
even if I mess up for the rest of my life, he'll still send that king. And that king will come. We know where he's going to be born. We know what he's going to do. We know how he's going to do it. And we know what he's going to do for us. They held on to that tight. That was in their future. But for us, brothers and sisters, it's in our past. The king has come. He came. And on Christmas, we celebrate that. We rejoice that the king came. And that we have this immense privilege of being able to call him our personal savior, our shepherd, to come into his flock, to receive healing, to learn from him, to worship him forever. The king has come. And we can know him ourselves. Amen. That's such a great thing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, not only are these verses in Micah just so amazing because they show us exactly that Jesus who was who He said He was. It predicted Him 700 years before and only Lord, only You could do that. But Lord, it teaches us so much about this King. It's a Gospel tucked right inside a prophetic book of a King who is a Savior. A King who loves us. A King who has all power and yet He comes in all humility. He humbled Himself. Lord, there's no end to the amount of praise and thanksgiving we can give You for these verses. But we pray for those who do not know You as their King. Still consider themselves on the outside. They've rejected You, Lord. They turn away. They say, I, I, can, I can live my own life. I can rule myself. I can put my trust in government or in persuasive people. Lord, they're still fighting You. But we know You have the power to overcome their disbelief. Lord, we ask today, please plant in the people's hearts of this church who don't know You in the community of Kenton, Western New York, Lord, please plant a faith in them. Help us to witness effectively to them. Speak through us, Lord. Help us to be bold in sharing the Gospel message to those who are in such darkness right now who are thrashing around, who are in pain, who don't have a God who's healing them, who, aren't follow, who isn't following a God who's leading them the right way. Lord, help us to love these people, not to look down on them, but Lord, just to realize that's where we were too. Please help us. Please help them. In your name.